The following message was recorded at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Oviedo, Florida. Covenant is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America, a community committed to seeing the gospel deeply rooted in our lives and in the lives of our neighbors in the Oviedo area. We welcome you to visit us on Sunday mornings in Oviedo or anytime online at cpcovito.com. Our sermon text this morning is Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, Death and Hades gave up the dead who are in them, and they were judged, each, of, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of the Lord. All right, let's pray together. Father, you've promised that through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And so we do ask for that this morning. And we might not only have hope, but delight and satisfaction and security. And we pray, Father, that you would use your word to shape our desires, um, to shape, it like the, shape them like the psalmist, that uh, we might prefer to be a doorkeeper in your house over any of the temptations that the world throws at us. Father, we pray that you might be glorified in us and that we might enjoy you forever. In this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I am, 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 am what should I say, impelled um, to do something unusual for me. I want to begin this sermon with a rant. Uh, yeah, on Saturday I was, oh, and by the way, don't, don't take offense at my title, um, but uh, hopefully we'll, we'll get to that. Um, but on Saturday, I, somebody sent me an essay that had been floating around the internet on the Christian world's topic du jour, that of sexuality and gender. And I saw it, and I, I had no intention of reading it. I had issues with it from the get-go, but it kept popping up here and there. And a sentence stood out. Um, the sentence at the end of that, it was the end of, a, end of a paragraph that implied if you did not agree and accept the author's premise, then, quote, the future of the church is bleak indeed. Um, if anything will inspire a rant from me, it's that kind of sentence. Uh, this is from someone who should know better. Uh, if anything for us should have come from our spending the time we have in the book of Revelation, it's that the future of the church is never bleak. Oh yeah, there will be darkness. There will be times when the church has to pass through the flames of, of God's purifying fire. But, you know, we're coming here to the end of the book of Revelation, and the church is doing just fine. Thank you. 
The church is here. It is strong. And the lesson of 2,000 years of church history since John the Baptist first said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, uh, is that the church prevails. The church perseveres. Please beware of the doomsayers and the alarmists. Our world has been and still is full of those who want to frighten us into accepting their theses. And often it is to force you into a certain way of acting. Alarmism is the order of the day and certainly has been since when I started ministry, and that was way before the internet. Uh, avoid the alarmist. Turn off the alarmist. Don't follow the alarmist. Alarmism f drives fundraising. It drives internet clicks. It drives politics. It drives cable news. It's a tool to get you to give in to something or to do something or to part with your money. And it is not healthy for us to make a steady diet of alarmism. The message of Revelation is not alarm, but it is chill. God's got it under control. Perhaps it's more like the end of the book of Ecclesiastes where the, uh, you know, the wise man says the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. Or as we more familiarly know that summation, glorify God and enjoy him forever, which is why we've tied the book of Revelation to the Sermon on the Mount. God has his church in his hand and so let's be the church. Let's walk according to our Lord Jesus. Let's do what he calls us to do. Let's not be worried. Let's not be anxious. God will bring about his purposes. As long as Jesus is king, the future of the church is never bleak. It is Jesus' church. And the gates of hell will never prevail against it. End of rant. But it is related because we come here out to the end of the book of Revelation and the clouds that may have accumulated around some of the language and some of the visions, the clouds begin to part. Uh, we begin to see the church's destination with greater clarity. And by the way, the, the, I'll, get, I'll say this again, but the, remember the, the crowd that early in the book of Revelation is gathered around the throne is a crowd that no person could number. Uh, that doesn't sound like a bleak future for the church. There's a beautiful scene in Bunyan's, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, which if you've not read before, you will start reading this afternoon, uh, in which the pilgrims find themselves on this high plain and they can glimpse their destination. They can glimpse the celestial city. And there's calm in that. Though they've come through and have yet to go through even more dangers, toils, and snares, as Newton put it, uh, they can see the destination. They can taste the destination. And the glorious message of the passage that is before us is that you too, Christians, stand on that high plane. You can glimpse it. And more than simply glimpse it, you can know that it is your destiny, your future, and the future of the church is never bleak, but rather beautiful because of the redeeming work of Christ. And it's because of that work of Christ that those who have faith in Him can possess an immense level of confidence 
and joy, both in life now, but also in the life to come. And I know you want to believe this. I know many of you believe it. I also know that we often struggle with it. It's hard at times for a variety of reasons. Some of us live in a shadow of constant fear. Perhaps we're puzzled and confused and disturbed more by the imagery of lakes of fire than the encouragement of the gospel. We are troubled at times and terrified by the thought that that maybe we have not done enough, even though we've been told a hundred times that it's not what we do. We still struggle with that. I didn't have my quiet time this morning, we tell ourselves. Oh my goodness, God is not going to welcome me. We worry about those things, and we don't need to. I understand the fear, I understand the anxiety, but the truth of God is so much more solid. Your hope, Christian, is not in vain. And the Apostle John and the images that God gives to him wants you to hold on to that. Now, central to the passage, to the text that's been read to you, is this thing called the book of life. And what I want to do is to consider what that is, whose names are written into it, what it represents, and what we're to do with that all in the next, oh, 20 minutes or so. It's not going to happen. Anyway, the book of life, first of all contains the names of those with faith in Jesus. I just want to start there and suggest to you that this book of life is a collection of all of those who are trusting in Jesus, the names of those who trust in Jesus. We could frame it other ways. In some ways are helpful for certain conditions, other ways are helpful for other conditions, but for today. Those who have faith in Jesus, those who are trusting in him, are those whose names are written in this book of life. The scene here is one of heaven, and in the center of that is a throne. Verse um, 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. Um, you know, John sees God on a throne of judgment. It's a judge's bench. And we're going to make some leaps here and press quickly through this. But who are brought before this throne? The dead are brought before this throne. Verse 12, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Uh, good and bad, you know, great and small, powerful and weak, uh, rich and poor, uh, Christian, Buddhist, whatever. All are gathered before this throne, and they are gathered to be judged as the text goes on, and the books were opened and then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And it was high stakes. As we get to the end of this segment, this vision, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That certainly is an auspicious um, situation, an auspicious throne of judgment, but it reminds us of you know, it is a picture. It's a picture of what the Apostle Paul spoke directly in verse 10 of 2 Corinthians 5. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good and evil. That verse has troubled me um, at times in the past. Humanly speaking, it makes perfectly good sense. God has created his world. God has set boundaries in his world. God has given rules in his world. And apparently these books 
that are before the throne of God contain your record of the ways in which you have kept those rules, stayed within those boundaries, and the record of those times you have not. Now that makes sense to us because we understand justice. We understand that if you break the rules, there are consequences for that. And God the judge, we understand his pronouncing a verdict upon, his, upon those who break his rules. A guilty verdict, or innocent as the case may be. But that's as much as our human nature allows us to see, or that's as much as we are willing to see, because, and, and, and if we do see it, let me put it this way, if we do see it, it's a very daunting picture. The book of Randy. What would be in that book of Randy? It would possess all my sinful thoughts, all my unkind acts, all my errant teaching. It would record my petty jealousies, my bitter comments, my, my incessant discontent, my angry outbursts. That's what would be there. What would God's judgment have to be? You see, based on what makes sense to us, justice, heaven would be a very empty place. But Revelation has told us it is occupied by a countless multitude, and that's because of this other book. Another book was open, we read, which is the Book of Life. Book of Life appears to be a book of exceptions. Let's put it that way. Because we read the names who are found in this book are spared, no matter what is written in the other books. What matters is that your name is written in this book. That's what matters. This book of life is the master list of those who are being saved. Now obviously, do keep in mind, this is a picture. This is an image. This is God giving to us through John a way of understanding something that is known to the mind of God. But using this imagery, you know, we come upon those times when we're uncertain of our future. We're doubting our salvation. We're uncertain of our relationship uh, with eternity. Our sins are mounting up on us. You know, wouldn't it be good to be, over to be able to sneak into the throne room of God, peer over uh, God's back, look at the book, and find our name written there? Uh, we read uh, earlier the, the reading that, that Dan read from from Luke chapter 10 records a time when, uh, when the apostles had been set out to do some ministry. And, and it was an immensely successful ministry. They saw things happen they could not have imagined happening. And, and they're just excited and rejoicing about that. And Jesus uh, says to them instead, yeah, you know, be excited about that. That's all very good and well. But he says, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's the assurance we need. But the presumption in that statement by Jesus is that these, these disciples could know that their name was written in heaven. They could know that their name was written in this book of life. How could they know that? Elizabeth alluded to that in another passage in the Gospel of John. Uh, another passage that talks about death and judgment. Here is how Jesus summarizes it all for us. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Your names are written in heaven. 
If you believe in the Son of God, if you trust the Word of God, and if you're clinging to Jesus, the critical matter here is belief. To see Jesus and the one who sent him is the key to life. You know, hear what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, I say to you, whoever can figure out whether he is elect or not has eternal life. Reformed people get tangled up in that. Don't worry about that. The Bible never tells us to try to figure that out. It doesn't say, um, I say to you, whoever is worthy has eternal life. Uh, that's a message contrary to Scripture. It simply says, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me. The only matter of concern is what you do with Jesus. The only question is whether you're trusting Jesus in his death and resurrection to carry to you heaven, and to carry you to heaven, to carry you through that judgment scene, that you're clinging to him, that he is your, your advocate, he is intervening between you and this judgment seat. He is saying, this man is innocent, let him through. If you are trusting in Jesus, your name is in that book. You can know that. Your hold on Jesus, no matter how tenuous you feel it is, is what matters. By faith, you both testify that you believe your name to be in that book, and by faith, you are assured that it is. This, those are the names that are there. That's the point I want to get to right now. Don't worry about how it all works. But the point of Scripture is you are justified by your faith. That is, by faith we take hold of Jesus. Yeah, this is a, maybe a spurious illustration, but I was just reminded of, of how I think uh, in Harry Potter there was this object. I'm not going to say the name out loud because I'll probably get it wrong, but there was this object where somebody could put their hand on it and then at a moment, you know, be taken someplace else. And I think if I've got it right, you put the hand on your object, and if somebody also has their hand on you, you go. All right, you Harry Potter people can correct me later. Port key, thank you. See, I, I, what an educated congregation we have. You put your hand, but the sense is, you know, Jesus is that. You know, whoever you are, the, the assurance that your name is there is your proximity to Jesus, your faith in him. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Okay, that's what the book is. It contains the names of those with faith in Jesus, but it's not magic like something out of Harry Potter. Rather, it is mercy. And here's where we get into what, you know, I'm using the language of gobbledygook because, well, sometimes in, conver sometimes in, in, uh, in discussing uh, biblical ideas or theological ideas, uh, you know, technical language is used, and I try to avoid that. But sometimes that technical language, you know, so it sounds like gobbledygook. It sounds like just meaningless words to some of us. But sometimes that technical language, man, if we can get hold of it, it's beautifully reassuring. And there's something here that needs a name, even a technical name, that this book of life is really sort of a central picture of God's merciful imputation, in fact, a double imputation. So let's go back, let's go back to Revelation and pick up this scene. Verse 12, let's just hear it again. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And again, I think what this is doing is giving us a pictorial representation of what's meant by imputation. Now, imputation is a means by which we credit to somebody else something that is ours. All right? 
in such a way that it actually becomes that other person's. We're familiar with this, whether you think so or not. We can be quite skilled at imputing guilt to others. I wrecked my girlfriend's car. Now, the remarkable thing is she married me anyway. But I hopped out of the car that I had just wrecked, and I was fully ready and irate at this other driver who was guilty for wrecking my car. That lasted for about five seconds. I was angry, I, but I'm imputing my guilt. I was the one that pulled in front of him, but why did he hit me? You know, it's his fault. It's not my fault, it's his fault. I'm imputing my guilt to him. You're guilty. I wanted to credit him with it. But the story of Scripture is one of imputation properly managed. And for this, I, I want to look in, at Romans 5. And again, these are things which, which, with which we could spend hours, and we're not going to do that. But, um, but just to get a sense of it here, in verse 12 of Romans 5, Paul says, Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. Elizabeth put the picture up here, right? Adam ate the fruit of the tree, and through that act, death entered the world. Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. The punishment for uh, sin was death. But the text goes on to say, And so death spread to all men, or all people, because all sinned. Now, not have all sinned in just exactly the way that Adam sinned. But we nevertheless are guilty of Adam's sin. We all die. We are bearing the judgment for his sin. And where the punishment of sin is, so there is the sin itself. This punishment for sin, uh, Paul makes clear in verse 14, death reigned from Adam to Moses and on, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Even those who sin not like that transgression or don't even... You see, in Paul's case, he's saying, you know, sin is a breaking of a law. And, and sometimes you know, the law didn't exist until Moses. And you have all these people who were not sinning by breaking the law, so to speak. Nevertheless, the guilt, the punishment of sin was upon us because we're related to Adam. He sinned, we bear the guilt. How do we know? We die. Death is the punishment of sin, so where death is, sin has been, even over those whose sinning wasn't like the transgression of Adam. The point here is you and I bear the guilt of our own sin, yes, but we bear the guilt of Adam's sin, and because all of that, we die. Now, all of that, Adam's sin, our sin, is inscribed on the books of Revelation 20. Therefore, we are, as our membership vows puts it, without hope, save in the sovereign mercy of God. We are without hope. If that's our record, if that's what's in the books, there is no hope. But Paul goes on to say here in Romans 5 that with Jesus, something old has been undone, something new brought into existence. Look at verse 19 of Romans 5. Paul says, as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, that is Jesus' obedience, the many will be made righteous. Oh, look, it works both ways. The sin of Adam is imputed to, I mean, the guilt of Adam is imputed to us, but here he's saying the righteousness of Christ 
is imputed to us as well. Now, who it is that this, imp, that this righteousness is imputed, Paul makes clear at the beginning of this very chapter. We have been justified by faith. Those who have faith in Christ, whose names, as we've said, are written in the book of life, these are those who receive imputed to them Jesus' righteousness. And this leaves us. This is where it begins to sound like gobbledygook. But here, let me make this personal. Because I think this is how Revelation makes this clear. Randy is now standing before the throne of God. His book is opened. The book is opened. The judge begins to read the record of Randy's life. And what is read there? Not my temper tantrums. Not my greed. Not my arrogance, not my heated responses, not my negligence, not my intemperance. That's all gone. What is read there is every kindness, every peaceful word, every holy act of Jesus Christ. That is what is now written in my book. That's imputation. He has fulfilled all righteousness and has imputed it to me. My book is filled with his works, not mine. I know what you're thinking. It's not fair. It's not. Mercy's not fair. Justice is fair. This is mercy. Well, where'd mine all go? Where'd mine go? You know where mine went. This is the double imputation. My guilt, everything written in that book, was credited to him. That's not fair either, is it? But it's what was expected. It's what God had been planning for generations. Isaiah 53, 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And all of that misdirection is written in our books. But the Lord has taken all of that and laid it on him All of it has been laid on him, the iniquity of us all. And those he took to the cross. That's why he had to die. Verse 5 of Isaiah 53, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. And when I read this, and when I contemplate this, and when I think about all of this, I don't want to accept it. It's not right. It's not right that my book should be erased and replaced with the righteousness of Jesus. It's not right I stand before God, and He looks at my book and is pleased with me because I healed the sick and fed the hungry. But there's no other way. And it's not fair, but again, fair is the language of justice. It's not justice we want or desire or need. And it's not as if God, God is perfectly just. He's not opening the book and saying, yeah, I see where you threw your keys across the room, smashed them into that concrete wall because you were mad and ticked off. I see where you did that, but 
I'll overlook that. There is no overlooking. That matters. But it has been placed on Jesus and taken out of my book and all his righteousness put on mine. That's mercy. That's absolute mercy. And the prophet Zechariah, there's an image, and, I, and I'm making these other references so you can see this is not isolated teaching in one part of the Bible. The prophet Zechariah talks about the priest Joshua, who is filthy, muddy, icky, dressed in awful rags. God takes them off and gives him a brand new set of spotless clothes. It's what he does to you. You're no longer wearing your sin. You're wearing the righteousness of Christ. The feast of heaven demands we be properly clothed, that we be justified, that we be declared not guilty, that the stand before the throne of God renders a judgment of innocent. Justification, our catechism says, is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us, accepts us as righteous. Why? for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. That's the heart of your hope. The heart of your hope is right here in Revelation 20. The book is opened. Your name's written in the book of life. Everything has been taken out of your book and replaced with the beauty of Jesus' work. There's a hymn that causes to celebrate this. John Wesley, I think it was John, maybe it was Charles. Oh, let the dead now hear thy voice. Now bid thy banished ones, that's us, rejoice. Their beauty, their beauty, your beauty, this, their glorious dress, your dress is Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's your hope, Christian. That mercy, God has given you the righteousness of Christ. Your name is in his book. You are Secure. The book of life contains the names of those whose faith is in Jesus, who have been by faith welcomed into this act of God's merciful double imputation. I hope it is not gobbledygook to you, because it's beauty. And it assures a solid footing for you in an uncertain world. We could go everywhere now with this reality. You being the ones who have been perfectly, made perfectly righteous in the eyes of God, the movement of the book of Revelation is toward heaven, toward eternity, toward that full and blessed communion with God that has been promised. Jesus has for his people at the cross endured what we read at the end of Revelation 20, verse 15. He has endured the lake of fire so that anyone's name not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. But for those whose names are in that book of life, and who are that? Those with faith. He has endured that for you. And he's given us life in his place. And if we bring back that image from John Bunyan, those whose names are written stand in that field, that, that level place, viewing the celestial city, knowing that that is their destination. Now there's some concrete outcomes of such things, and I'll just mention a few. The first is faith. Um, it is by faith that you know your name is written there. This faith is a holding on to Jesus and his promises. And if this, if this does not describe you, I call you to this faith. It's not a difficult, complex thing. It is believing that there is a God who has a right to judge and that you are subject to that judgment 
but also to know that there is one who has borne that judgment and you can turn to him and ask him to save you, and he will. He offers his life for yours, his record for yours. Faith is accepting that from him and nothing more. The sky won't open. Angels won't break into a heavenly choir. You won't start to glow. You might not even necessarily feel any differently. But if you mean this, it's because your name is written in the book of life. Believe Him. But it also then means rest. Rest. You really can rest. You can stop trying to earn God's favor and you can stop trying to earn others' favor. We always try to earn what we do not have. We don't have to work for or earn that which we already have and cannot lose. I know you know this, but we forget it. That's why we have to gather time and time again. You're to rest. I'm a busy person. I'm a controlling person. My family comes over, and I'm scurrying around the kitchen, and I'm wanting to make sure everything is right, and, and they tolerate that. But man, on something like my birthday, they just come along and push me and tell me to sit. And they prepare a meal, and I do nothing but eat, and it's delightful. And this table before us is a picture of something very similar. Jesus has prepared a, ma a meal for us, and he has sat us down and said, rest while I take care of the details, and then come eat. This table is a picture of our resting, our accomplishments and our good works are not the ticket to heaven. We are not setting the table. We are not providing the meal. Jesus is. So stop trying. Just rest. This is a Sabbath. Rest. Go home and be reminded it is a day of rest. And it's a day of rest in anticipation of your eternal rest. You have genuine rest. Third, the realities of all of this push perspective upon us. That's what Jesus was trying to say to his disciples. And Luke 10, they came back from the missionary tour. Their minds were blown. I am sure their egos were big. People were healed and demons fled. They thought they were something, and really they were something. They were doing good works, but Jesus tell them, tells them that what matters for you, the thing you need to rest on, is not your accomplishments, not how, how many times your name is in the paper, not how many credits or letters follow your name. Jesus tells them that what matters is not the splash they make, but that the end, that their end is secure. God enables some people to do remarkable things for them, some for him. Some some have the courage to enter Ebola-infected jungles and care for the sick, even though it means they might die. I don't do that. You don't do that, maybe, but it doesn't matter. Our names are written in the same place. We serve Christ. We serve others. And some of us do it with great acclamation. Some of us do it with nobody noticing. Some spend their days engaging unbelievers in vigorous debate about the essentials of Christianity and lead many to faith. Their names are written in the book of life, but so as well are those who can't leave their houses and are stricken with grief or anxiety and find that they can only pray, and when they pray, their prayers are weak, but their names too are written in the book of life. What we do, we do out of love for Jesus, not to prove our worth or gain heavenly jewels. You and I need that perspective, no matter what your role or what God asks you to do or how you have succeeded or how you have failed. What matters is that your name is written on the book of life. And fourth, Imputation must change our view of death and dying to know that Christ has taken away your ugly sins, your ugliness, and replace those clothes with his robes of righteousness. 
has to remove whatever fear remains for our last days on earth. To know this and to know it well enables the Christian to die well. Uh, to get older is to hear the phrase, well, it's all downhill from here in a different way. But all of you, young and old, will die. And maybe it's good to think about that when you're young. You will die. And it may come sooner rather than later. I have personally great apprehension about dying. I don't want to be unwell. I don't want to lose my mental or physical capabilities. I, and, you know, for some of you that's already occurred and it's occurred to those you love. Our last days in this life might be short, they might be long, they might be uncertain, they might be trying. Dying concerns me, but death need not. And if death needn't concern us, neither should our dying. The last miles of the race may be slow, tedious, wandering, and dark, but at the finish line, you will be embraced into the arms of a Savior and taken to a seat at His table, and that is as certain as anything that we could say. So the book of life contains the names of those with faith in Jesus, recording God's merciful double imputation and assuring you of a solid footing in an uncertain world. The first weekend in April, there's a 10-mile race that begins and ends at the Washington Monument, circles the Jefferson Memorial, past the Lincoln Memorial, and apart from the 10-mile part, sounds pretty cool. But for me, what's cool about it is the opportunity to run it with my 15-year-old granddaughter who lives near D.C. Now, there, are six, there, there were, last time, 22,000 people that wanted to run that race. 22,000 people who voluntarily wanted to pay money so they could run 10 miles. We're not all sane. Only 16,000, however, get in. So you have to put your name in a lottery. So in December, Graceland and I uh, submitted our names to the lottery and we waited. It's something we really, really, really wanted to do. But the selection was purely by chance. So if you'd asked me, so are you going to run the race? I would have said, I hope so. But in a very uncertain kind of hope. We did get in, by the way. But that hope so, with that tinge of uncertainty, is the answer many give when they're asked, when they're asked whether they think heaven is their future home. Truth be told, those of us who've been Christian for a long time, who know how to answer Christian questions, may answer that question with an absolutely eternal life with Jesus is mine, but on the inside they're saying, I kind of hope so. I just want to remind you, people of God, your hope of heaven is not an uncertain hope. It is real, it's, and it's, it's because of Jesus' blood and righteousness. These are not mere words meant to comfort. These are things that are rooted in the death and resurrection and words of Jesus Christ. I cringe in movies. For some reason, these always get written, written into screenplays. Somebody's in trouble, and then somebody else comes along and says, everything's going to be okay, or I promise nothing bad is going to happen to you, and I want to throw my shoe through the television because the party speaking cannot guarantee that this would be. And yet here I stand telling you, I promise nothing bad eternally is going to happen to you, and everything's going to be okay. But it's because 
the one who is speaking these words can guarantee that it will be. And in Jesus, he has done so. So let us be genuinely hopeful. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed at your mercy. We don't want to accept it. We find it not fair. (laughs) And it's not. It's gloriously merciful. And so I pray, Father, you would soften our hearts, help us to embrace it, to understand it, and genuinely to rest in it. And Father, for for those who are struggling at the very um, door of death, oh God, I pray that you would pour into their hearts by your Holy Spirit a renewed confidence in these absolute truths. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.